Now, if you turn to the book of Romans, you probably have heard before that Martin Luther, at one point in his life, after he had discovered uh, that faith alone saves God's grace and faith, he came up with some sayings, and it's not just him, but this came out of what's called the Reformation, and there were some sola doctrines. Sola fide is faith alone. Sola gratia is grace alone. Sola scriptura is scripture alone. And that came out of Luther and others really reading the Bible in its whole context, seeing a system in the Roman Catholic Church that was corrupt and very much works-oriented, really telling people they had to earn their way and pay indulgences to the church and that kind of thing. And so there was a debate that grew out of that, and the Reformation came. And Luther, as he, and, and of course we know that Luther was not a perfect person, but he read something like this, and this is uh, Romans 3.28, just to show you the difficulty as we set this up. He read these words by Paul. For we maintain, Romans 3.28, that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now that sounds like a direct contradiction to something that we just read in the book of James in chapter 2, verse 24. Now, If you move on in your Bible and you go a little bit more to the right, you'll find the book of Ephesians. And here's what the Apostle Paul says. Ephesians 2, 8, a little bit to your right, says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Now God's grace is a free gift. The channel by which you receive that grace is through faith. You receive it by faith. And that, Ephesians 2.8, not of yourselves, it is, this grace is a gift of God. It is not the result of works, Ephesians 2.9, so that no one should boast. But we need to keep reading. For we are his workmanship, or we are God's work of art. We've been created or recreated in Christ Jesus. We've been regenerated, born again in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I want to show you one other section. It's in Galatians. It's just a few pages before what we just read. Galatians 2. Now, as Paul continues to highlight his gospel, he says these words, Galatians 2.16, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, which your Bible say, no flesh shall be justified. No one's going to be made right before God based upon the works of the law. Now, if you flip over to Galatians 5, Paul certainly believes in works because he says these words. Look at verse 6. Galatians 5, 6 says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision, Galatians 5, 6, nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. Now we know as you turn to the book of James, our main text, the writer of Hebrews, as he goes through the great, what we call hall of faith, says over and over again, by faith, by faith, by faith. And here's, in staccato fashion, some things that he said. 
He said, by faith, Abel offered. Enoch walked with God. Noah prepared an ark. Abraham obeyed going out, not knowing where he was going. Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Moses endured. He considered. He looked to the reward. He left Egypt. By faith, he kept kept the Passover. By faith, he passed through the Red Sea. And there's more and more and more. So there are many things that the Bible acknowledges that we do by faith or through faith. But saving faith is really what's before us in James' uh, section. And right out of the gate, and I do believe there's a connection between this passage and what goes before it in verses 1 through 13 we looked at last Sunday. James asks the question. This is verse 14, James 2. He says, what use is it, my brethren, as he addresses the church, if a man says, that's a key word that you need to mark, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works. Now, many of you have heard the idea of a said faith, a profession. Someone can say they're a Christian. They can profess faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, if we went all over the Inland Empire this afternoon and we began to ask questions about people's spirituality or about their faith, people might say, I have faith in God or I'm a spiritual person or I believe in a higher power. Interestingly enough, though, the group that James is addressing actually is orthodox. Look at verse 19 for a moment. James says, you believe that God is one, you could write in your margin there, that's Deuteronomy 6.4, because that's the Hebrew Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You do well, says James. The demons also believe and shudder. The demons are not atheists. Do you know there's no atheist demons anywhere? They're very orthodox. They know the Hebrew Shema, the famous prayer prayed twice a day by all faithful Jews. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The demons know that. They're orthodox, but they don't have a saving faith or a saving relationship with the Lord. They're at odds with him. They're in rebellion to him. And they have one better than a lot of people who say they believe in God. The demons believe and they shudder. Now, that's exactly what the word is. It's the, the Greek word is a bristling cat scared by something. And the fur goes up. The other day, I was holding my dog, and things scare my dog. Musical instruments uh, scare my dog. And she was sitting on my lap, and she was like shivering. <laughs> it's like, what are you afraid of, girl? What's wrong? A lot of people say they believe in God, but they have no fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of Wisdom and knowledge. So the demons do one better than a lot of people who claim to believe in God. Verse 14 of James 2 is a said faith. It's a profession without necessarily a possession of the reality. What use is it, James 2.14, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but he has no works, can that faith, the faith that he says he has, save him Or the New Living Translation says, can that kind of faith save anyone? I want you to notice if you've studied this passage before, that the issue is salvific. Or scholars would say it has to do with soteriology. In other words, James' argument here is not just about practically helping the poor. He is saying that there's a kind of faith 
that doesn't save the soul. It's a false faith as compared to what we would call a true faith. And when James is going to make the argument, he's not going to say that the only way that you demonstrate true faith is by feeding the poor or helping orphans and widows. Those are some of the ways. But he's going to go beyond that. But he's going to challenge the notion that someone can claim to have faith and have no works. That's just frankly impossible. You cannot be a born-again Christian and not have some sort of fruit from the fact that the living God is living inside of you. Amen? And so uh, James here is making an argument that there is such a thing as saving faith and such a thing as false faith. Example. And I stole this from Professor Craig Hawkins. Imagine that you were demonstrating, let's say, eight or ten symptoms, and you went on WebMD, and you began to research your symptoms, and as you read uh, studies from doctors and journals, and you get the information, you begin to discover that these eight or ten symptoms all point to a single disease. And let's just say it's fatal, 100% fatal. And you do your homework, and you talk to doctors, and you do your research, and what you have now discovered is what is captured in a Latin word called notitia. I'll spell it for the note takers. N-O-T-I-T-I-A. Latin word notitia. It means raw information or data. You've got the data. Let's say that you do enough research where you move from notitia to a Latin word called a census. A-N-S-E-N. S-S-U-S, I think it is. You assent to the fact that it's true. You've done enough homework now. You've got this terrible disease. You, uh, you agree that that's what you got. And, and you've got the facts and you agree with it. But let's say that you hear that there's a Dr. Strunk in Germany. And all of a sudden you begin to read and research and Dr. Strunk has come up with the antidote to this deadly disease. And you've been reading now about people who have the same symptoms as you. They're getting on a plane. They're visiting Dr. Strunk. They get the injection and they're healed. And let's say that you agree. You do all your research and you say, it's true. I got the symptoms. People are getting the injection and they're getting, they're getting saved or they're getting healed. Until you get on a plane and you go to Dr. Strunk's office and you receive the injection, you could believe all day long, but you're still going to die. You must receive the injection. And you go from notitia, raw information, to a census, I agree, to a third Latin word called fiducia. F-I-D-U-C-I-A. That means trust. You actually believe it enough to do something, to get on the plane, take the injection, and get saved because the raw information and data may be necessary, but not sufficient. Everybody understand what I'm saying? You got to get the injection or you're still going to die. You could go on the streets of Corona and ask somebody, do you believe there's a God? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus Christ came into the world and a lot of people grew up in Sunday school and died on a cross for the sins of the world? Yes. Do you believe that he rose again from the dead? Yes. Do you have a personal relationship with him? They may not. Or maybe they say they have faith, but you work with this person. They don't go to church. They don't give to the church. They don't invite anybody to uh, 
participate in the things of the gospel. They don't share their faith. They're living with their boyfriend or girlfriend. All of their ethical behavior is in contradiction to the scriptural mandates. And you say, you're a Christian? Yeah, sure. I marked my medical form. I'm saved. I'm a Christian. Uh, If I'm about to die, have a Christian pastor walk into my hospital room. That's pretty much what that means. Or this is my wishes. If if I should die, this is how I want to be treated. This is my religious orientation. Your religious orientation, checking a box, means nothing. Are you born again? Do you know the living God? That's what James is dealing with. He's dealing with the nature of faith. Are Paul and James in conflict? I think not. I think this is how you can resolve it. I think Paul and James are standing back to back, but they are dealing with two different issues. Paul is dealing with a group of people that believe that if you have good works, good works save you. So Paul is dealing, very important note takers, with pre-conversion works. Paul is dealing with people who say, you got to keep the law of Moses to be saved. You got to keep the food laws to be saved. You got to show up on the Sabbath to be saved. You got to wear this clothing to be saved. You got to show up in these places to be saved. You may have to convert. You may have to be circumcised to be saved. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. You are saved by grace through faith, plus nothing. Works don't save you. James, with his back to Paul, is saying, wait a minute. If you say you're saved, then don't sit there and say, well, I don't have to do nothing because I'm saved by grace, saved by grace, saved by grace. So I can live like hell, have no visible fruit that I belong to Jesus Christ, maybe even live my life contrary to the main dictates of the Bible and by extension God, but I'm, you're saved by faith, you're saved by grace. And if you say something to a person like this, they know one Bible verse, judge not lest you be judged. <laughs> Who are you? And they usually say it like that. Who are you? And you got to kind of shake your head a little bit. Who are you? Purse your lips. Who are you to, right? That, that's a deflection mechanism. It is a way to get the spotlight off of the fact that they may not know the living God. And I don't think it's the most loving thing just to ignore that kind of situation. There is an inseparable link between faith and works. In fact, I would argue you can't have one without the other. Please hear what I'm about to say. Faith alone saves, but saving faith is never alone. Faith alone saves, but saving faith is never alone. If you are a Christian, there is going to be visible fruit in your life. It won't be perfect. You may not be as consistent as you want to be. We're all in a growth sanctification process. We're saved by grace. We we can't add anything to the perfection of Jesus Christ. The price was paid in full. But once we get saved, the working of God is going to come out. It's faith by faith. It's faith working through love. They are not mutually exclusive. And James and Paul are fighting two different uh, gospel errors, you could say. Fighting two different battles from two different directions, but are not contradicting one another. And just to affirm this, Douglas Moo says, Paul denies any efficacy to pre-conversion works, 
But James is pleading for the absolute necessity of post-conversion works. We, works are an outward expression of an inward faith. When we baptize people, we, we put them into the baptismal and we say, okay, now what's happening in the water doesn't save them, but what's happening in the water becomes a picture of what's happened to them. They're going down into the water. They've been buried with Christ. They come up out of the water to new life in Christ. The water doesn't save them. Christ saves. The baptismal reality is being pictured in the water and going under and coming up, but it's already happened in the heart in the same way. Works are an outward expression of an inward reality. That's what James is saying. He said, look, you can say you have faith all day long, but if there's no visible fruit in your life, and Jesus said, you will know people by their fruit, are you a Christian? You might be asking the question, well, Pastor Michael, this is not necessarily comfortable. Are we mandated to look at things like this? We are. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. And so James is putting another mirror up to us to ask us some deep questions. He gives an illustration. It may have happened in the church that James addresses. He says, if, James 2.15, a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food. Could have been a real situation in the church. There were a lot of poor people, as we saw last Sunday. Let's say somebody comes in and they come to the front after uh, the service for prayer. Let's say that they come up here and they say, I am famished, Pastor Michael. I haven't eaten in two and a half days. And imagine I say to them, oh man, bummer, dude. I got a turkey sandwich in my fridge all wrapped up for me. Right after this, I got a little pepper jack cheese on it. I got a pickle on the side. And they're sitting there and their mouth is watering. And I say something like this. I say to them, go in peace. Look at verse 16. Be warm, be filled. Yet I do not give them my turkey sandwich for their body. James says, what use is that? One day I was going through the McDonald's drive-thru and it was some years ago and the guy was holding a sign, we'll work for food. So I'm going through McDonald's. So I, I thought, you know, the Lord's teaching me compassion. I'm going to order two happy meals. It wasn't a happy meal. Two double cheeseburger kind of thing, right? Fries and a Coke. So I got two of them because the guy was holding the sign. And I went to the guy and I said, here. And I tried to offer him the bag of food. And he said, I don't want that. And I said, what do you mean? Your sign says you will work for food. You're not even working for this. I worked for it, but I'm giving it to you. And he said, I don't want that. I don't want money. I rolled up the window and said, extra cheeseburgers for Pastor Michael today. <laughs> Here's the deal. The Bible is talking about a genuine need, praise the Lord. <laughs> a genuine need. Not someone who's, you know, look, we, we have it all the time. We have genuine needs and then people come to the church to manipulate us. We all know that. But James is not talking about an illegitimate need or a want. He's talking about someone who's famished. They haven't eaten in a while. And you say to them, let's, let's put it this way. Let me pray for you. Oh, Lord, please fill my brother's empty tummy and send him off in your shalom peace in Jesus' name. I still got the turkey sandwich. He's got nothing. And James says, if you do that, your faith is useless. You can't send someone off in shalom when they don't even have the basic necessities for their body. James says, that's ridiculous. 
Turn over to uh, 1 John, just a few pages to the right. 1 John 3. I'm going to read this to you in the NIV because it's just so beautifully written. Jane, uh, excuse me, 1 John 3. We're going to pick it up in verse 16. This is the other John 3.16. It's just 1 John 3.16. We can't say to people, I wish you the best. Good luck to you. If we do that, what use is it? The answer is none at all. Look at 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. 1 John 3.17. If anyone has material possessions, sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God abide in him or be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with what? With actions and in truth. We can have warm, warm words, but cold deeds. The Bible's asking us to back up a profession. You can talk all day long. Talk is cheap, says James. But do you back up what you say? Turn back to the book of James. I heard about a guy who, uh, he pulled up to a cleaner's. It was 10 o'clock at night. And the sign on the business said 24-hour cleaners. And so he tried to open the door, and the door of the business was locked. He's like, what's going on? So the next day, he went home. The next day, he came at 10 in the morning. And the door of the business was open. He said, hey, I came at 10 o'clock last night to drop off these clothes, and your door was locked. What's the deal? 24-hour cleaners. And the owner of the shop said, oh, that's just the name of our store. We're not open 24 hours a day. I just claim to be a Christian. I don't do anything that the Bible says. I, I just, if I'm asked, I say I'm a Christian. My granddaddy was a minister, or I grew up in the church, or I, I went to Sunday school a few times, or I go on Easter and Christmas. And James would say, well, good luck, but are you a Christian? I mean, that's the question that is before us. And so, as James uses the illustration that may have been happening in the church, he says, even so, James 2.17, faith, the said faith that the man claimed in verse 14 is what you need to remember, the, the faith he claimed to have. Faith, verse 17, if it has no works, is what? It's dead. The Greek word is nekros, where we get necromancy. It is dead being by itself. You could put faith in quotes in verse 17. The faith he claims to have, which has no works, is dead because it's not producing anything. Good works will flow from a truly converted life. It's just going to happen. In Revelation 3.1, Jesus addresses the church in Sardis, and he says, you have a name that you are alive, but you're dead. You may have heard the story before, but there was a young minister, he got called to a church in Oklahoma. So he went to this little church, though long-standing, but it was kind of dying. He had great hopes of reviving it. Stars in his eyes. And so every week he was in the pulpit, and he was preaching with passion, but the church was dead. So finally he decided to take radical measures. In the local newspaper, he announced that the church had died, and he was going to hold a funeral service for the church. And so... Never was the church so packed as that following Sunday. Man, there were people, they were everywhere, and they were packed in the place, and he had a casket down in the front, flowers on top. And he said, before we can go and pay our last respects to the dearly beloved, 
I'm going to do a eulogy. And people couldn't wait, you know. And he gave the eulogy for the dead church. And then he said, now you are all invited to pay your last respects. And he opened the casket. He moved the flowers away. And people began to pass by to see the dearly beloved departed one. And as they passed by, the pastor had cleverly put a mirror in the casket. And each person that walked by got a good look at the dead church. <gasps> oh, pretty clever, isn't it? And pretty convicting. Because each of us, James is putting up a mirror and saying, are you a Christian? How about you do a little inventory of your soul? James 2.18, someone may well say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without the works. And I, some people believe the I is James here, will show you my faith by my works. He may be restating the argument. This is called what in scholars call a diatribe style, maybe an imaginary objector. Maybe James has shifted it around to show the essence of the argument going back and forth. One person says they have faith. That's good enough. Uh, maybe James himself says no. The only way people are going to see if faith is genuine is by your works. There's going to be fruit. You can't have one without the other. R. Kent Hughes comments. Faith and works are like the wings of a bird. There could be no real life, no flight with a single wing, whether works or faith. But when the two are pumping together in concert, their owner soars through the heavens. Faith and works Neither is authentic without the other. Because saving faith will produce good works. Then we get the treatment on what the demons believe. Verse 19. You believe that God is one? Well, the demons believe that too. And they do better than a lot of you. They shudder. They fear God, as we can see, as demons ran into Jesus when he was on the earth. They're orthodox. But are you willing to recognize you foolish fellow? Notice James is not politically correct. He did not read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. He says, the, the word is kenos in Greek. You empty-headed individual, you shallow fellow. That faith without works is useless. Greek word agros, it is idle it's not working. There's a play on word in Greek, play on words in Greek here. You could see James with a sign outside the church, and it would read this way. Faith that has no works does not work. You know how people are really good at coming up with clever slogans and campaigns and stuff? This is James' slogan. Faith that has no works, it don't work. And maybe he held the sign up for the people in this church as they were walking out on a Sunday. Can you imagine? I was just going to go get my maple bar and some guy with a sign challenging my faith. How dare him? Doesn't he know the verse, judge not? <laughs> Lest you be judged. If you have a faith that's not working, maybe you don't have genuine faith at all. Was not Abraham our father, verse 21, justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, mark this, faith was what? Faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it, his belief in God, was what? 
reckoned to him as righteousness. And he, Abraham, was called the friend of God. I think it's amazing that any man, any fallen man, could be called God's friend. It's one thing if you say, God is my friend. It's another thing if God says, he or she is my friend. Abraham so walked with the Lord that God considered him my friend. And I think you could say that God, if you're walking with the Lord Jesus right now, he considers you his friend. Because Jesus said, I have revealed to you all my Father's will. I've made it known to you. I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. Because we're walking in a love relationship with the Lord. How can two walk together unless they be what? Agreed. And so it's amazing to me that maybe somewhere up in the heavens, God looks down at one of us. Perhaps you can make this personal and says, that person's my friend. Because they carry out my will. They know my heart. And I think that's what Abraham was. If you'll notice in verse 23, the quotation, very important for us all to get this, that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness is from Genesis 15.6. Everybody write that down. Genesis 15.6, if you're taking notes. And here's the setting. Abraham had no child. He was... I think 75 at this point. And he said, Lord, you've made this promise that my offspring's going to be like the stars of the sky, but I've got no child. How's that going to happen if I have no child? Is it going to happen through Eliezer, my servant? God says, no. From your body, you and Sarah, is going to come a child, is going to come an offspring, and that's how the promise will come. And so Abraham believed God. He believed in the Lord. The, the Greek word for his belief being reckoned to him as righteousness is called logizomai. It's L-O-G-I-Z-O-M-A-I. If you want to, you can go back and listen to this later. And when Abraham said, I believe, even though I don't have the evidence, I don't have, there's no child in my wife's womb, but said, because you said it, I believe it, God said, righteous. Abraham, I now put my righteousness into your account because you believed me. That was 11 years before the sign of circumcision was given to Abraham and 30 years before he went up Mount Moriah to offer Isaac on the top of the mountain. And God stopped him. Abraham's righteousness was by faith. But his action of being willing to offer Isaac was the justification that the faith 30 years before was legitimate. Everybody understand? So those works, and Abraham had more works than just that, but you could call that the pinnacle or the climax of his great works, his greatest willingness to offer his son. He was acting out the gospel on Mount Moriah where Jesus would die 2,000 years later. And here's the point. Faith alone saves, but saving faith will have works. And it should be more than just one occasion. Wouldn't you agree? Wouldn't you agree that if you are saved by the living God, your whole life would become a testimony of his saving power? I think we'd all say yes. And so Abraham's work here uh, in offering Isaac 
was a fulfillment of the scripture, not that it was a prophecy per se, but when Abraham went up on the mountain 30 years later after his great declaration of belief, it fulfilled the scripture from 30 years before that he was a true believer and even called the friend of God. This is how James and Paul remain back to back because they're dealing with different issues. Abraham's faith was matured, look at verse 22, or brought to completion or perfected, just like our life is going to have moments where all of a sudden our faith will mature. And it could be through a crisis. It could be a Garden of Gethsemane moment. It could be a Mount Moriah moment. And all of a sudden we take a huge step in our faith. We trust God in a moment when we don't understand something and our faith gives testimony to what happened years ago, that we were genuinely saved by grace, but works follow. Abraham was called God's friend, and so you can see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. That is, on a horizontal plane, you can see a man's true faith by what he does, and he is justified in this sense because works will go hand in hand with true faith. And so I don't think we have a contradiction. I think they are complementary. Let me show you Philippians 2. Everybody go there for a moment. A few pages back. Look at Philippians 2. I want to show you a verse that I think fits very well with what we're talking about. Philippians 2. This is verse 12. Philippians 2, 12 says, So then, my beloved, 2, 12, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Philippians 2.12, what's your Bible say? Work out your salvation with what? Fear and trembling. Now do you see, it doesn't say work for your salvation. It says what? Work out your salvation. Abraham, when he offered Isaac, was working out what God had already worked in. This is how I think we understand it theologically and practically. He was already a believer. He had already had God's righteousness credited to his account by faith. But the Mount Moriah scene affirmed that uh, Abraham was a genuine believer working out what God had already worked in. Back to the book of James and we'll finish it. He believed in God. It's the epic moment, as H.C. Uh, Lupoid says, the biggest moment, the biggest word in the chapter, and that, for that matter, Abraham's life. He believed in the Lord, and that's why he did what he did. And it's not limited only to the Mount Moriah experience. He walked with God. He went to a land that God would show him, and so on. And someone might say, well, okay, that's Abraham, but he's an Old Testament biggie. He's a... He's a patriarch. God spoke directly to him. How does that compare to me, little old me? Well, he uses his second example. He says, in the same way as Abraham, James 2, 25, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works? Now you move from a patriarch to a prostitute because people are always looking for wiggle room. Well, that's Abraham. How can I be compared to Abraham? How about Rahab? Can you relate to her? She's a prostitute. Okay, now we're getting a little warmer. I, I can understand this. She was also justified by works when she received 
the messengers and sent them out by another way. Now I'm going to read Joshua 2, 8 through 11, so you can just remember the setting. The spies come in out to spy the land, show up at Rahab's home. And if you want to turn there, you can. It's Joshua 2, 8. And she hides them from her own people. And she makes a covenant with them because she's heard about the God of Israel. Here's what it says. Now before they, the spies, lay down, Joshua 2, 8, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And when we heard it, Joshua 2.11, our hearts melted. No courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Does it sound like Rahab's a believer? Oh, yeah. Way before the spies got there, I think Rahab trusted the Lord. And her hiding the spies was simply the outworking of something that had already happened in her heart. She was a prostitute. She lived among a pagan people and she was empty. She wanted something different. Leslie Ludy, being interviewed, shared that a young woman who was a Victoria's Secret supermodel was interviewed for GQ magazine. In the interview, she said, you know, everything about me is fake. She said, everything is enhanced in some way. It's not even real. She said at the end of the interview, get this, even my heart is fake. Oh, you would think, oh, this, this woman's got it all. She's on top of the world. She's, she's got money and fame and, and all these people think she's beautiful. And she says, my beauty is a lie. My heart is a lie. Is there something more than this? And Rahab, I think, said, Lord, if you're real, show me. And two spies showed up at her house, not on accident, because something that had already happened vertically. Her hiding the spies was simply the outworking of belief in God. And so James concludes, for James 2.26 says, just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Final verse. You have a spirit. There are some scholars that say your spirit and soul are the same. When your spirit leaves your body, and it will one day, should the Lord tarry, to be absent from the body is to be what? At home with the Lord. When your spirit leaves your body, you have a spirit. You are not just your body. You have a soul. Jesus said, what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world and, it, and forfeits his soul? You have a soul. And when someone dies, their soul leaves their body, if they're a believer, to go be with the Lord. Their body is buried and they await a day as they spend time in the beauty to be at home with the Lord the day of resurrection, when that body that went into the ground is going to be reunited with that spirit that's with the Lord, that's the day of the resurrection, and then they'll have a new body. Your loved one who died is with the Lord right now. When their spirit left, their body died. You got no breath in your body, 
your body's dead. And if you have no works, your faith is dead. You don't have a true faith. You have a false faith. You have a professed faith, but there's no life or reality behind it. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you may be religious, but you must be born again. Your body's not all of you. You have a spirit. A faith without works by itself is no more a living faith than a corpse without breath is a living person. Works are not to be viewed as an added extra any more than breath is to be taken as an added extra to a living body. One cannot exist without the other. If you don't have your spirit in you or you don't have breath in you, you dead. And if you don't have works coming out of a living faith, you're spiritually dead and you're dead in your trespasses and sins. But I have good news. You can be made alive. Want to be made alive? Do you want to have the power of God in your life and not just some religiosity where you check in somewhere once or twice a month and that's good? I go to church. So what? Are you alive in Christ? That's what James is saying. Faith without action, says R. Kent Hughes, is a decaying corpse. The right kind of faith, a real faith, will produce real works. A life alive with faith with the Spirit will be a beautiful testimony to the life-transforming power of God and a person who's called the friend of God. And I close. Works are not the cause of salvation. They come from salvation. They are not the root. They are the fruit. Grace is the root. Good works are the fruit. You can't reverse it. But saving faith will never be alone. Why the debate, I asked this week. What's going on? Why did James have to be so strong in this section? Because he had people he was talking to that said, ah, yeah, I believe. And there was no tangible evidence of God in their life. And James is saying, uh-uh, wait a minute. I believe in faith. And James might say, I came to believe in my brother after the resurrection. But I don't believe that once you say you have faith that you do nothing and you just sit. If I stand in my garage, it doesn't mean I'm a car. <laughs> Standing in your garage does not make you a car. Going to church does not make you a Christian. Going to McDonald's doesn't make you a cheeseburger. I don't know why McDonald's has come up <laughs> a few times. But anyway, maybe we should say in and out. But being born again of the Holy Spirit and then producing the fruit of the Spirit, the preeminent one is love, will happen if you're born again. Will it be little by little at times? Sure. Will there be seasons when you take three steps forward and three and a half back? Sometimes. But James says, Here's the mirror. Do you know God? I think every Christian walking into churches all across the world, and especially perhaps in America, needs a little reassessment of what Christianity is. It is not a spectator sport. It's about being in union with the living God and letting that fruit flow out of your life. Father, thank you for the patient listening of this wonderful congregation. Thank you for those who will hear this later.
And maybe it will convict their heart to really take a hard look. And maybe there's some here who are not sure that they're born again. They don't see any fruit. Or maybe, maybe it's been slim pickings and they're wondering. Or maybe they're a Christian, but they're just, they've been afraid of commitment or afraid to step up. Whatever it may be, Lord, only you know. You know every heart. And only the individual can take a personal inventory and honest one. But I ask that you'll help us to celebrate saving grace, faith in the finished work of Jesus, plus nothing. Saved by grace. If we confessed on our deathbed and believed, you'd save us. However, let us not use grace as an excuse for sin or idleness or laziness. Let us be so in union with the living God that good works are just simply the natural overflow. We can't help but share the good news. We can't help but serve because it's just so much of who we are. Now, if you have not trusted Christ with your head and heart bowed, and you want to do that today, you want to know that you know, it's something like this. And I would encourage you, with your head and heart bowed, something like this. Pray it out loud if it's you. Lord Jesus, come into my life. I do believe that you died on that cross for me. I do believe in your resurrection. And I want to follow you. I want to know the power of your resurrection. And I even want to know what it means to suffer for you. To walk with you. To serve you. I want to live for your cause. Lord, for those who are crying out, perhaps those who may be rededicating their life, I pray you'll bless them. I pray you'd strengthen them. I pray that you'd remove their burdens that they've been carrying. Thank you that you took all of that at the cross. Thank you for the power of your resurrection. But I pray that you'd be doing a fresh work in this church. That we'd be moving out and serving one another in love. And it'd be love working through our faith. In Jesus' name and all God's people said.